And that's going to be the subject for our reflections this evening. We're going to be looking at Psalm 88. And I'll explain in a moment where the title Lament for a Son comes from. But first, let me pray and then we'll begin. Merciful and gracious Father, we thank you for the breadth and depth of your word, the Bible, and that it touches all the emotional extremes of our experience. And we pray that uh, this evening you would show us another one of those extremes, and in so doing, please would you prepare us for uh, whatever experiences may lie ahead of us in the midst of which we may have need of your wisdom, of the perspective given by your word, circumstances in which we may need, so to speak, permission to express the emotions that we feel and guidance in how to express them in a Christ-like way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many tragedies and hardships that afflict different people at different times. And if I just think about friends of mine, including you all, but also others, uh, not a part of this congregation, and just in recent months, a list comes all too readily to mind. Unemployment, bereavement, um, unexpected illness, the unexpected illness of somebody else, physical infirmity, uh, long-lasting mental ill health, a sick child, uh, an enforced geographical relocation, leaving behind everything that's familiar. There are many, many tragedies that afflict us. Uh, among them just then I, I listed grief but even that and perhaps grief or bereavement over the death of someone is it would reach the most intense uh, corners of our uh, experience of pain and uh, emotional hardship but even among even within that category of grief, there are different layers, aren't there? We all recognize the difference uh, between the grief over an aged Christian great-grandfather who passed into the presence of Jesus quietly and peacefully without experiencing pain, surrounded by friends and family, who was ready to go and to be with the Lord. We recognize the difference between the grief that we would feel in circumstances like that and perhaps the grief that many of us have felt in those circumstances and the grief when someone is torn away from us prematurely or painfully or in circumstances other than having lived a life long and full of years. Even in grief, there are degrees. And I'm struggling to imagine 
a, a grief more painful than uh, the death of a child, one of your children. You could add factors to it to make it worse, couldn't you? The manner of the death, perhaps the age, perhaps the content of your last conversation with him or her. Though all those things might make something bad even worse, but that's a pretty painful platform on which to be building, isn't it? It's hard to think of anything more painful than the death of a child, one of your children. And therefore, it's hard to imagine uh, grief that we might see in the life and the face and the heart of one of our friends more painful than the death of one of their children. And my task this evening is, well, I wanted to say to prepare you for it, but that is a foolish and ridiculously over-ambitious task. Nothing in all the world could prepare us for such an experience. Uh, That's not my goal. Uh, My goal, rather, is to show you, in case you need it, when you need it, which you will, where the path begins, and to point to some signposts along it. I say when, because just as a matter of pure statistical reality, in a congregation numbering a few hundred people, over a period of a few years, it is very hard to imagine that somebody won't suffer the death of a child. A child who dies too young, in circumstances too painful. And I'm very confident that this evening won't be enough. Uh, If it's one of my children, I'm very sure that the things that I have to say to you tonight won't be enough. I just need to go back and listen to that talk I gave, (laughs) and then it'll all be fine. Hey, I could just look at the notes. What's wrong with you, Pastor Jeffrey? Um, Because it turns out, obviously, that experiences like that are, are not the kind of thing that we just get over. They are rather the kind of thing that we have to live through. And so I want to try and indicate some, something like where the path begins and some pointers along the road. And the title at the top of the handouts I've just given to you, and thank you to the guys who distributed them, comes from the title of this book, Lament for a Son by theologian Nicholas Walterstorff. Professor Walterstorff is a theologian um, of some repute, not exactly in our tradition, professor of philosophical theology at Yale. Uh, There would be points along his theological journey where we might raise a a reformed Calvinist eyebrow or two, but um, he's a man of deep, uh, thoughtful... reflection on and um, meditation on the scriptures and more importantly for our circumstances this evening his son was killed unexpectedly in a mountaineering accident in his 25th year and I'm going to read some extracts of this book for you 
And these extracts of the book are the signposts along the road that I want to point you to. And they're printed on the reverse side of the handout. And I'll read each one and make some comments on them and just give you some thoughts thereby about how you might helpfully pursue the reflections that uh, Professor Walterstorff um, notes down. Um, I don't think this book is all you need either. But I think it's a remarkable book. This was actually a gift to me from my fellow CREC pastor, Mark Bolthrop, who many of you have now heard or seen because I did a podcast interview with him a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Bolthrop serves up at uh, Redeemer uh, Reformed Church in Oklahoma City, and I had the privilege of going up there for a conference a few months ago, and we've been friends for a number of years. And uh, one of the places in which our friendship has been uh, cemented is in the annual pastors' gatherings that Pastor Booth and Pastor Neil have graciously invited all the guys in our presbytery to over the last few years. And one year we were invited to give a book review, and, and I went along with a couple of books I'd read and just talked about them. Pastor Bolthrop brought copies of this for everybody. And he said, and I quote, it's a tearjerker, unquote. And it is. Uh, I hope you'll pardon me if um, I get all emotional. <laughs> uh, it's not my intention. Um, but uh, it is a remarkable series of meditations, and it is brutally honest, brutally and painfully honest. Like the psalm, which I'm going to read to you before we look at these reflections, and which we're going to return to at the end. I've printed out for you Psalm 88. Just before I read it, let me make a comment or two about it. Uh, Psalm 88 is routinely described as the most dark or perhaps pessimistic or hopeless of the Psalms. Um, Depending on how you count them, something like a third of the Psalms have some note of lament or sadness in them. Uh, uh, Biblical scholars typically categorize the Psalms into different um, sorts of Psalms, royal Psalms and thanksgiving Psalms and Psalms of praise and laments and imprecatory Psalms. Truth is, those categories are They're sort of overlapping. Lots of psalms have more than one of those features, but the categories are helpful in highlighting the tone and content of the psalms. And about a third of the psalms have some note of lament in them. And in every single case, what happens, roughly speaking, is that there's some problem that the psalmist brings to the Lord in prayer and he laments over, and then he's wrestling through that problem in the the text of the psalm itself, And three quarters or 80% or 90% of the way to the end of the psalm, he says something like, but you heard my voice, O Lord. My cry came to your ears and you rescued me or something like that. And it's like, we can all breathe a huge sigh of relief because the psalm leads you through the valley of the shadow of death and up into the sunlit uplands of resurrection hope. All the psalms of lament, that is with one exception. Psalm 88. The last word of which in Hebrew is the same as the last word in this English translation, darkness. This is the only psalm in the whole Bible which begins and proceeds and ends in that posture of lament. Which of course raises the question, how can it even be a Christian psalm? Well, it can be, and I'll share that with you in a few minutes as well. Let me read it, and then we're going to jump into the extracts from this book uh, afterwards. 
Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Lianoth, a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to shale. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Let me say a word or two just about that psalm. It's not apparently written by one who is grieving, and obviously not written by one who is dead. But you notice, I'm sure you noticed, how he likens his experience to one who is dead. I'm not going to go through the psalm in detail, but just to highlight a couple of points. Verse 4, I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. In other words, his experience is like that of death, and like one who is grieving for a beloved son or daughter, his plight seems hopeless. And you see that, of course, in the um, the final few verses of the psalm. Verse 13, I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Well, that's wrong, isn't it? The the way these lament psalms are supposed to work is, but I, O Lord, cry to you, in the morning my prayer comes before you, and behold, you hear my voice. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what happens in all the other psalms. That's what happened to all the other guys who got to pray psalms of lament, Lord. They got a God who hears them. So why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. 
And then, of course, the final word, which I've mentioned to you already, uh, it's, it seems from one or two moments earlier in the psalm as well that one aspect of this man's affliction is that the people who used to be his companions have actually become, well, enemies or opposed to him. There are echoes in here of the book of Job, of course, and there are actually verbal parallels as well with some bits of the book of Job. Remember Job, the man who, um, when he needed his friends to come and comfort him, they came and told him, well, you must have done all kinds of wicked things to get yourself into this mess, Job. <laughs> you know, it's like, thanks, brother. Um, they surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And probably that the verb you have caused carries on over into the next line. So it's probably something like this. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. You have caused my companions to become darkness. Darkness is the place this psalm ends. And so it reflects the plight It reflects the experience of somebody who has experienced the kind of tragedy for which there seems no way back. Uh, And therefore, for someone who has lost a child, which I'll repeat, is likely to happen likely to happen to somebody among us as a congregation in the next 10, 20, 30 years what would be the chances of it not doing so we pray Lord that it would not be so but we deal with realities of God's providence as did the psalmist as did Professor Walter Storff I want to recommend this book Make sure you're sitting down when you start to read it. Let me read through a few of these extracts and comment on them briefly. And then we'll return to the psalm and I'll say a couple of things about that. The first extract is quite early on, page 13. His son's name was Eric. He died age 24, as I said. And, um, we took him too much for granted... Perhaps we all take each other too much for granted. The routines of life distract us. Our own pursuits make us oblivious. Anxieties and sorrows unmindful. The beauties of the familiar go unremarked. We do not treasure each other enough. A couple of other sentences which I've cut. I didn't know how much I loved him until he was gone. Is love like that? And one suspects it is, I guess. I was so troubled by the absence of teaching on the subject of death a few years ago that the church I was pastoring in London, we ran an entire conference on the subject. Four talks on the subject of death. And um, uh, I gave two of the talks, I think, and one of them I was, I, I pointed out that um, in biblical terms, our lives 
are a gift to each other. And it struck me in reflecting on that that perhaps the climax of my life or your life as a gift to others is your death. Could it be that the, the manner of a person's death could be, in some circumstances, such a, a gift and a blessing to the people of God? Uh, and I was musing on this, particularly bearing in mind one young lady who I've spoken to you about once or twice before who was terminally ill and had been for her entire life. Uh, she suffered with cystic fibrosis and she, she was then still alive. Um, she died uh, shortly thereafter. Um, her, the manner of her death, in fact, the manner of her wrestling with the whole illness and the horror of cystic fibrosis as it kind of tore her body apart, really, uh, it, it was a remarkable testimony to all the people who knew her. She was one of those people who, when the pastor goes to visit her in hospital, you come out thinking, well, I did precisely zero good for her, but boy, did she minister to me. You know, it was really, really was like that. Um, now, here's the thing. I don't think you say that to Nick Walterstorff when he's just written these words. I don't think you say that. You know, your son's death and the manner of your mourning for him is a gift to the church. I don't think you say that to him. We'll come to what you might say in a paragraph or two's time. But doesn't it strike you as a glorious gift, that paragraph? We are in the position that we would give anything to go back to the day after. Right now, The, the sister to whom you've just been a little bit sharp. The used to be a Facebook friend but isn't anymore because of what you said to me. The wife to whom you have shown too little care and compassion. To whom you've made too little effort to be emotionally intimate with. The husband whom you have neglected to honour. Right now is still alive. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it? Isn't it a gift? That, excuse me a second. Otherwise, it'll go all over my glasses. I, cut, I had to cut the section about tears from this because I was, like, typing it up in my computer this afternoon. I'm like, no way I'm going to read that. I'll be bawling my eyes out. But you, you get to go home tonight and give that annoying little sister a hug. That wife you've neglected. A bunch of flowers. That husband you've failed to honour. A kiss and a hug and an apology. That friend who you've spurned for a decade, a phone call. You get to do that. You might not be able to do that tomorrow. This might be your last chance. What a gift. Of course, 
none of us is going to say to Nick Waldersdorf, we're really glad you had to go through this, brother, so we could all learn this lesson. But shame on us if we don't learn the lesson. You know, I don't know how many times... I mean, that I, have, I have had to learn and have failed to learn basic aspects of Christian godliness for years. Have you not done the same thing? And then one day, your opportunity to make that right might just be taken away and it's too late. And you're like, oh, I wish I had one more chance. <laughs> and the Lord has given you one more chance. Perhaps we took him too much for granted. Page 15, it's the neverness that is so painful. Never again to be here with us. Never to sit with us at table. Never to travel with us. Never to laugh with us. Never to cry with us. Never to embrace us as he leaves for school. Never to see his brothers and sisters marry. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. Only our death can stop the pain of his death. It's really interesting that, interesting is the wrong word, I say that too cheaply, don't I? Uh, I don't know what it is, it's really something. Like, but Nick, just mention the resurrection, come on, you'll see your son again, don't you want to say that? Cheapskate theologians, miserable comforters, it's like, yeah, of course. Like, he's not an idiot. <laughs> he might not be a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary or even at the Reformed Evangelical Seminary, but he's not a fool. He's actually living with the experience of grief. Now, here's a question. Let me pose the question for you more forcefully. Is the resurrection of the dead the answer to the pain of grief? Well, yes and No right? Yes. Let's just clear up our creedal bona fides for a moment. Of course, the resurrection, Psalm 16, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, neither death nor life, etc., shall separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Of course, the resurrection is the answer, but the resurrection is not the answer to putting your son on a plane to Austria and then going to bring him back in a box. That's not the answer. There is no answer. And it is no denial of the resurrection of the dead to continue to inhabit for a time the blackness of grief. And that's what Psalm 88 is for. If it wasn't for Psalm 88, then you would never be right to end a lament still in darkness. But Psalm 88 tells you, yes, a funeral is a funeral. There is a more modern tradition of describing them as a celebration of life. I actually think that's not all bad. I think there is a celebration of life element possible, in, certainly in some funerals. But why have we become so afraid of the intensity of the blackness of the emotion of grief? It's a funeral, damn it. 
damn it. Yes, it is. <laughs> it, is a, it is an experience of pouring out the endless blackness of grief. Because in our experience, it feels endless. See, that's why Psalm 88 ends like it does. It's one of the reasons why. There's another reason, I'll tell you in a sec. It's, it's to, to show us that our finite experience can just stop. And if you still feel terrible, you're not sinning. So what would you do? So, you know, let's say when it happens, it's not you, which will be most of us, Lord willing. So, next quotation. What do you say to someone who is suffering? Some people, Pastor Neil, (laughs) are gifted with words of wisdom in such circumstances. For such, one is profoundly grateful. There were many such for us. But not all are gifted in that way. Some blurted out strange, inept things. That's okay too. Your words don't have to be wise. The heart that speaks is heard more than the words spoken. And if you can't think of anything at all to say, just say, I can't think of anything to say. But I just want you to know that we are with you in your grief. Or even... Just embrace. Not even the best of words can take away the pain. What words can do is testify that there is more than pain in our journey on earth to a new day. Of those things there are more, sorry, of those things that are more, the greatest is love. Express your love. How appallingly grim must be the death of a child in the absence of love. In other words, say something, or say nothing, or just give her a hug, but don't say this. But please, please, don't say it's not really so bad. Because it is. Death is awful, demonic, typo here. If you think your task as comforter is to tell me that really, all things considered, it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief, but place yourself off in the distance away from me. Interesting where Job's comforters sat, isn't it? Over there, you are of no help. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on my morning bench. So there, that's the pastoral exhortation to all the rest of you who by God's grace don't lose a child when he and she do. Okay. But I don't know what to say, pastor. Let me tell you. Pastors don't know what to say either. What what would you say? I mean, like, sometimes people come to me and they have questions and they say, and they look at me as if I've, They describe the situation in their family or something. They look at me quizzically for about 10 seconds after they've finished asking it as though they're expecting to hear me tell them what to do. I'm like, I haven't got a clue. It's not, no, that's an exaggeration. It's not that I've not got a clue. Sometimes I have some idea. But not here. Nobody. I've said, I think three times in the last month, I don't know what to say to you, brother. I've said that three times to different people in the last month. 
You have my permission. Finally, I walked into a store. The ordinariness of what I saw repelled me. People putting onions into baskets, squeezing melons, hoisting gallons of milk, clerks ringing up sales. How are you today? Have a good day now. How could everybody be going about their ordinary business when these were no longer ordinary times? I went to my office and along the way saw the secretaries at all their desks and all the students all in their seats and the lecturers all at their podiums. Did they not know that he slipped and fell and that we sealed him a box? sealed him in a box and covered it with dirt and that he can't get out. You see what? It's, he's describing the experience of living in something that is so utterly all-consuming and nobody else knows. It's like, can't they hear the thoughts in my head? Can't they see it written on my face? Don't they, how can they be so concerned about so many trivial, ordinary things. And what do you want to say to that? You want to say, well, yeah. (laughs) Why are we concerned about so many trivial, ordinary things? Maybe you want to say. Or maybe you take it as a... an expression of how grief swallows everything up so that the trivial ordinary things that we need to be concerned with like putting onions in bags and bringing up sales so those things seem so trifling and insignificant when actually they are significant it's like death swallows up the created order around a person and leaves them isolated in this sort of blackness so that all the good things around them just seem so irrelevant I tried to jog and could not. It was too life-affirming. I rode along with friends to go swimming and found myself paralysed. I tried music. But why is this music all so affirmative? Or so jolly? Has it always been like that? You notice he's, he's noticing what the world is like for the first time. Perhaps then a requiem, that glorious German requiem of Brahms. I have to turn it off. There is too little brokenness in it. Oh my goodness. Too little brokenness in Brahms' Requiem? Have you listened to Brahms' Requiem? (laughs) Go home and listen to Brahms' Requiem. And then ask yourself, what kind of a state a man could be in to find too little brokenness in that piece of music? Is there no music that speaks of a terrible brokenness? That's not what I mean. Oh, this man is being so honest. He wrote something, then he realized that's not what I thought. And so he didn't cross it out. He said, no, I got that wrong. This is what he meant to write. I mean, is there no music that fits our brokenness? Is the music that speaks about our brokenness is not itself broken. Is there no broken music? Well, of course there is. Back over the page. Psalm 88. Did you notice the superscription? Tells you not only the author, but the tune. 
according to Mahalath Lianoth. I, I, I can't remember the literal Hebrew translation, but Lianoth, I think, is something to do with affliction. I can't remember Mahalath, sorry. I should have made a note of it. This is broken music. It's music for broken people. And so, is this a hopeless psalm? I said I'd come back and tell you why it ends like it does. The, um, the first three words, O Lord, God of my salvation, are in Hebrew, Adonai, which you people, heard people pronounce as Yahweh. It's the, the, name, the covenant name of God. So Lord, uh, God, Elohim. And again, if you know 10 words in Hebrew, you probably know those too. So Yahweh, or Adonai, Elohim, God, Lord, God, and of my salvation. Uh, the word for salvation is Yeshua, from which we get the name Joshua in Hebrew, uh, the name Jesus in Greek, from which we get Jesus. So, covenant Lord God, my Jesus. Now look at the end of the psalm. It's quite difficult to articulate in theological terms the way in which God suffers. This is a little parenthesis for you. The doctrine of divine impassibility is called the claim that God in himself doesn't suffer as God, not in the way that we think of suffering. But, and there's a big fat but right at the centre of orthodox Christian faith, God became man so that he could suffer. So God knows what it's like for man to suffer. Covenant Lord, God, Jesus, my friends have become darkness. You see? Sometimes poetry suffers with the explanation, doesn't it? Let me say it again. Covenant Lord, God, my Jesus, my friends have become darkness. Let's pray, shall we? We thank you, merciful God, for speaking to us in and for every experience even those most intense experiences of grief that we pray none of us will ever have to experience, but we fear, if fear is the right word, that in your mysterious providence, some of us may. We thank you for Jesus, who knows darkness. We thank you that you know what it is to lose a son. We pray that we would become the kind of community that knows how to bear grief and knows how to help its members to do so. And would we be the kind of community 
that embraces this gift of life, this moment, this day, wisely and with gratitude, knowing that but for your sustaining hand, it would be our last. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Shaw.